Well, we welcome everybody to this week's edition of View from the Press Box. I'm Scott Hogan, and joining me is Brad Hallier. And we life kind of hit us hard last week, Brad, with our schedules of um, regional broadcasting. You were following your daughter and uh, regional soccer, and we didn't get recorded last week, but it, we got, we got a lot to talk about since we got two weeks worth to kind of kind of get through tonight. Yeah, it was, uh, and of course, with a lot of postponements and all that, uh, with uh, wherever we were going, I mean, I was in Council Grove, you were in Inman, and then I go over to, you know, uh, I was supposed to go to Wichita Collegiate, they moved it over to Goddard, and boy, that what a mess that regional was, but uh, got it all in, we're ready for state this week. We are, and we, we will get to that, we're going to save that for a, for a little bit later here in the podcast, but let's start off uh, where we typically like to a lot of weeks with the Kansas City Royals, Brad, who kind of seem to um, at least stable the ship for now as, as of when we're recording on Monday evening. They're just one game back of 500, 22 and 23 after um, they had the, the big 11-game losing streak where they went from first to third. They're, they're still in third, but only four back, and they've actually in their last 10 um, gone six and four back out on the road at – Tampa and at Minnesota this week and I saw a little Royals review before we get into that what what do you think about the Royals um, in this last couple of weeks of play well they bounced back very well you know they had the walk-off win on I think it was Sunday and you know they're there's they, they, they stable the ship and that's really I think what we were talking about during that long losing streak is they just got to stabilize things you know you and when, and when I was saying stabilize, I'm talking about, okay, they stopped the losing streak. Now they can't go out and lose, you know, eight out of ten or something like that. They've stabilized. They're four games back right now uh, of the White Sox. They're in third place. You know, they've actually got themselves a little distance between Detroit and Minnesota. So they, they, they've stabilized things. You know, they're, they're, they're just now, – now they have to maintain this level of consistency if they have hopes on at least being in the race, you know, through July and into August. You know, I think that we can all agree that – they're probably not going to go to the playoffs this year or next year, but it would be nice to see that consistency and, and see them win somewhere in the neighborhood of, uh, you know, 80, 82 ball games this year. Yeah, this was this is a really interesting article I read. A, a lot of it's going to sound kind of a doomsdayer, but I think it was just kind of pointing out places that they need to improve. And let's start with um, their on-base percentage and, and the way they're swinging at pitches. They're actually – 11th in on-base percentage in the league, but they're fourth, and this is actually fourth worst, at swinging at pitches outside of the strike zone. So you, you have a couple of very uh, disciplined hitters in the lineup in uh, Ben Attendee, and I'm forgetting the other. I think it's uh, may have been Merrifield, but as, as a whole, Brad, they're, they're swinging at a lot of bad pitches, and I think, I think that was magnified during that long losing streak. Yeah, they <sighs> – and and that's you know this is a different rant for a different day, but you know I just look at the how the strike zones are being called. I follow a Twitter account you know that tracks MLB umps, and I just the the the, the strike zones in Major League Baseball are just you know I think part of the reason that the numbers are you know strikeouts are going up is because I don't know if the hitters know what the strike zone is anymore. <laughs> I mean it just seems like that so many balls are being called strikes and strikes being called balls. I mean I, I don't I don't want to get too far into that because that's not what you were asking, but. Yeah, they're 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 doing a better job of you know putting the ball in play and making things happen that way. The crazy thing about that when they talked about you know, the batters swinging a lot of pitches out of the strike zone, then they brought up Salvador Perez, who's having a fantastic season. I think he's over three hundred hitting now. They said he hasn't changed his approach. He's still swinging at virtually everything they throw up there, but the difference is the pitchers, even with these quote-unquote bad pitches that are out of the strike zone, somehow he's still hitting them, which I guess is is, is a credit to how far Salvi's come, especially after missing um, virtually all of last season. I can't remember what game it was, but Salvi hit an opposite field home run, which, you know, Salvi's not an opposite field hitter by any capacity. I mean, you know, Eric Hosmer is one of the best opposite fielders I've, uh, hitters I've ever seen, and that's just not Salvi. He's a pole hitter. I mean, he you go back to the wild card winning against Oakland. And I mean, mm-hmm. that pitch was a foot outside and he pulled it down the third baseline, <laughs> but he hit an opposite field home run on a pitch that was up and away and probably a good six inches outside. So that, that to me, that was, you know, he's, he's always been a bad pitch hitter, you know, he, and I just remember uh, Vladimir Guerrero was, was that too. I mean, yes. Guerrero could, could get a pitch, you know, a foot outside the strike zone and still clock at 450 feet. And I think that's just a tribute to just how Sally can, 
go out and hit any pitch that's offered to him. He's just a very good bad pitch hitter. Yeah, and I said that all the numbers are supporting that. He, he's certainly been a one of the big highlights when you talk about their defense and and putting the ball in play in their defense. That was such a staple of their their World Series run teams. Right now, Brad, they have the worst ranked infield defense and the seventh worst outfield defense, which is really surprising. Now, I know they had some early injuries on the infield, but even Witt uncharacteristically has made some errors. So what do, what do you see happening on that, especially the Royals infield, to make them so poor right now at, at, at their infield defense? We can't state how strong the defense was, not just in 2015 and 14 when the Royals went to the you know, back-to-back World Series, but even back in the 80s and 70s when the Royals were winning the division almost every year, those teams, you know, we, we talked often about how good pitching they were, and they were. They had some great pitching on those teams. We talked often about how they were built for those ballparks, doubles and speed, and they were. But something that, we've, that we overlook a lot is just how good defensively those teams were. I mean, look at me, gold gloves that they had won, and not just Alex Gordon and not just Salvador Perez, but even guys like Omar Infante, who was a liability offensively, was a very good defensive player. Yes. You know, Alcides Escobar could often be a liability offensively. Great defensive player. Moose, Hosmer, they were very good defensive players. And so I think that's something. And, and of course, Lorenzo Kane, how could I forget him? A gold glove winner also. Mm-hmm. And that's just that's just something that's lost in the shuffle, I think, is just how great those teams were defensively. And it really uh, underscores that for a team like the Royals to compete, not only do they need that pitching speed, small ball, et cetera. But they need defense too. And that's that, you know, that that's a big reason that they're probably not going to contend this year unless that, that defense vastly improves. It, it has to get better. Well, we're, we're certainly hoping it does. And I think that's where players like uh, Carlos Santana and the aforementioned Salvador Perez and Whit Merrifield, those veterans, I mean, uh, Santana's been very good. He's one of those guys that is, is very disciplined at the plate, has uh, great discipline. Um, doesn't swing at those bad pitches. I think those are the ones you need to, to really lean on right now when when the defense is still trying to, I guess, maybe find an identity and maybe maybe really figure out who those main um, three, four guys on the infield are going to be because I think they're still trying to figure that out due to some of these early injuries. Yeah, and, of course, a lot of new players also and and guys, like you said, coming back from injury too, you know. And, and of course, they had the, the very short season last year. You know, there, some of these guys are still trying to find uh, a little bit of a rhythm. I mean, it's not easy to essentially not play baseball for 18 months and then all of a sudden just get right back into the grind. Well, you mentioned the pitching. Let's look at some of the pitching numbers. Third worst ERA in the league, 4.78, and they have the lowest – left on base percentage at 64.8%. Now, that being said, you look in the bullpen that Stamont, Barlow, and Brents have been very good. They combined for a a 2.70 ERA, but what they don't have right now, Brad, is depth. The rest of the bullpen, 5.55 ERA. So some of those young arms are pitching very well, but they need to find some other guys because you can't just, you know, you've got to have, um, six, seven, eight guys out there in that bullpen that can come in. You just can't rely on a couple of three guys um, day in and day out. Yeah, uh, yeah, and I say this as someone who loves Wade Davis and Greg Collin, but they're probably cooked, and yeah, you know, it's it's, it's probably best uh, at some point just to you know send them on their way. I know you want to bring these veteran guys who've been there, done that, to kind of mentor them a little bit but you know when they're hurting you more than helping you that's you know you just gotta I mean Wade Davis at 7.53 right now but it definitely uh you know there are some good young arms but they just you know there and there's some promising young arms coming up through the minors and that's another reason I think that this team probably isn't quite ready for contention yet is they just don't seem to have that depth that we were so used to seeing five six seven years ago and the other thing I know people are are going to be hollering about, and I think we need to really pull back the reins on Bobby Witt Jr., as I saw so far here in Double A this season, hitting 178. So um, I think we need to pull back the reins on, you know, a midseason or even that September call-up on him until he kind of gets his feet wet, gets used to the professional game. I, I, I think it would be extremely premature anytime. Um until well after the All-Star break, if at all, this season that you call him up. Yeah, high school kids need time in the minors. I mean, there's there's no other way to say it. I mean, yes, he had a great spring, but, you know, that can be masked by the 
high altitude and the heat in Arizona, which usually tends to raise people's batting averages in, in spring training. And I don't think there's anything wrong with keeping Bobby Witt in the minors for a while. I saw he had a two home run game over the weekend, including just a, a, a moonshot down the left field line. I mean, it was one of those where the, the left fielder and the center fielder didn't even bother running back. They just admired how far it was hit. So Bobby Witt will be fine. I, I know that. Uh, but yeah, there, there's no sense in rushing him to the majors. Look, just let him stay in the minors for a while. Again, Royals are probably not contending this year. So Bobby Witt's a, a, a big part of the future, and there's no sense in rushing that along. Yeah, I, I, I think he needs to keep down it. You know, if he really improves middle of the season or something, you, you know, might think about the bump up to AAA. But right now, I think uh, AA is right where he belongs. But again, the Royals again seem to kind of stable the ship 22 and 23, some tough road games this week. We'll see how they how they fare and hopefully uh this time next week we're talking about them maybe maybe a game or two over 500 in that you know two or three games back if they can stay there until the all-star break um you never know um what might happen uh, in the second half but at least at least they have seemed to uh, stop the bleeding for now um sticking on the baseball team Brad um the KCAC has acquitted themselves very very well in the postseason as they're getting ready now for the College World Series, which is at uh, Lewiston, Idaho, at Lewis and Clark University, will start um, on Friday. It's a, a 10-team double elimination tournament. Uh, the KCAC actually ended up getting three teams into the opening round. I, I didn't think they would get an at-large, but McPherson did, joining um, the tournament champion Ottawa and regular season champion Oklahoma Wesleyan. And all that they did, Brad, was Oklahoma Wesleyan won their um, opening round. They are in the College World Series, and both Ottawa and McPherson went two and two. Ottawa beat the top seed in their opening round. So to say that um, the KCAC's had a fantastic postseason and is still going would, would be quite an understatement. Well, it's good to see, too, because I think we agreed that you know, going back to the tournament, uh, yes, Oklahoma Wesleyan appear to be head and shoulders above everybody else, and deservedly so. You know, they won the conference by five games, but I think you and I were, were in agreement that there's still some quality teams out there, and we saw that in the KCAC tournament. So the fact that they're still, ha- you know, this had such a strong showing so, so far and still going, I think is really a tribute to how strong this conference is. Yeah, Friday it'll be Oklahoma Wesleyan, their first opponent, um, which I – I fully admit I don't know anything about is Georgia Gwinnett. I hope I'm saying that properly. So that'll be their opening matchup. They Oklahoma Wesleyan does have a deep pitching staff. They have very good power throughout their line, especially in the middle of the line if they can beat it around. But you get up there in that. Um, well, I tell you what, it's just it's something. Uh, the the KCAC you know uh, Sterling went two and two up there. Um, in the past, Tabor went two and two up there. I think Oklahoma Wesleyan has managed to go two and two, um, which gets you up in that maybe fourth or fifth place range when it all um, cycles out. But uh, we'll, I'll be very interested to see what what Oklahoma Wesleyan can do. I, I think just because of their depth and their power, that they've got a you know a slugger's chance to maybe make things interesting. Yeah, and, and we know that the that pitching is a currency in baseball, and if they've got that kind of pitching. You know, you really hope that and, and everyone's going to be throwing their ace in the first game. And if your ace can just go out there and just have a good game, give, your, give yourself a chance to win. You know, oftentimes you will, you'll see that, you know, these these first round games are often low scoring tight affairs. And as long as they, you know, Oklahoma Wesleyan's ace can come out and pitch it, you know, and, and do what he's been doing all season. There's no reason to think that they couldn't have a good uh, another good uh, weekend coming up. Well, we all know that these tournaments and especially this one, it's a war of attrition on your pitching. So. Um, that's why I give them a, you know, a puncher's chance. And also another uh, kind of a side note, the, the 2019 college world series champion was Southeastern Florida. That was, um, Adrian Dinkle as their head coach. He was the one that took the Sterling warriors to the yep. college world series twice and went two and two. Um, they are back. They look dominant again. I, I think they're definitely an odds on favorite. And I think it just shows, um, my gosh, that guy can coach. And I tell you, I've never seen anybody recruit like him. The, the two and two team, Brad, that he had the College World Series, you know how many Kansas kids that he had on that roster? No, I, 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 I think they had a good number, didn't they? Zero. Oh, zero. Okay. He, he, had, he did not have a Kansas kid 
on that roster. I mean, he had kids from all over the country um, in here. So um, I tell you, that, that guy can coach and can he recruit. He is something else. Yeah, and the fact that he's he's maintained that momentum at his, at at a different school now. Just when when you do it at one school, you know that it's always uh, appreciated. And when they and and, and awesome, and, you know, I think about Kyle Crooks, the former Hutch JUCO coach, and going to two World Series, and he's maintaining his level level of success at Central Missouri. And I think when you do it at multiple schools, it just really indicates that your system and your way of doing things is correct. Uh, he actually talked to some of the people at Sterling um, in the spring, right when the season was getting going in 2019. And he said that he should be fired if he didn't win the Carl world series that year, because he had that much talent. So what did he do? (laughs) He went out and won the college world series. So (laughs) he knows the kind of kids he's getting. And uh, I'll be interested to see if they can uh, repeat, obviously without getting to play last year, but um We'll, we'll keep tabs and see how Oklahoma Westland does when we get to this point next week. Uh, let's go into a little basketball talk, Brad, as we're both big KU fans. And, boy, did they get some fantastic news in the, the transfer portals here in the last couple of weeks. Let's talk about the one I really wanted to focus on is they get the highest-rated point guard in the nation, um, Remy Martin. He's an um, Arizona State grad transfer the last two seasons, he's averaged over 19 points a game and four assists from the point guard position. He's right in that six foot, um, six foot one range. I tell you, this kid can do it all. I, I mean, boy, if everybody comes back, I know some of the current KU players are kind of testing the draft waters, but if everybody comes back and you put this guy running the, the point guard, wow, that, that makes them already really, really good. I think we were just kind of spoiled as KU fans with some of the great point guards they had recently with Devon Dotson and Devontae Graham and Frank Mason. And, you know, even going back to the final four days when they had, or, you know, the, the 2012 team with Tyshawn Taylor, who really wasn't great, but when he was, but, but, but when he turned it on, you know, in that tournament, he was really, really good. And you, you have to have that point guard. You just have to. And, and God bless Marcus Garrett. You know, he did as well as he could. And I know that he was more than just a point guard, but you know, it, it, you're not going to make a deep NCAA run without an elite point guard, without you know uh, some experience. And the fact that the Jayhawks are starting to get, and this is and this is frankly the the world that we're going to be living in very quickly is you know a lot of transfers. It's just how we're going to. It's just it's just the world that we're going to be living in. And the fact that they got this elite transfer, Remy Martin from from Arizona State. And as I mentioned, Jalen, before we started, Jalen Coleman lands from Iowa State, a guy who can shoot the three and average over 14 points a game for, for frankly, a pretty poor Iowa State team last year. You know, the Jayhawks are looking pretty good so far. That's that's really got to be a, a boil on Iowa State's butt that he transfers <laughs> in conference to, uh, you know, a perennial power in KU that they know they'll have to see him at least twice this year. That. That that's really got a sting for them. You usually don't see the in conference transfers like that, but that that's got to hurt at Iowa State. Well, just like with Bryce Thompson transferring to Oklahoma State, uh, and and again, this is kind of the world that we're going to be living in now that they've kind of lifted the one. What, what what's the new rule? One pe- uh, penalty free transfer or something like that. Now everyone gets one now, where you don't have to sit out at all. You're eligible to play right away for your first transfer. I mean, it's just. It's the world that we're, we're living in right now where you're just going to see so many transfers. And this is probably a longer topic for a longer day, but it's probably going to get to the point where there's going to be some coaches out there who aren't going to do any high school recruiting, or they're just going to hit the transfer portal every year. I was just going to ask you that. If you, if you think this trend is going to overtake the, the real huge push for those um, coaches that always have to go after those one-and-dones out of high school, do you think this is going to actually – be bigger than the one and dones. Yes, yes, I think that you're still going to see the one and dones. That that's still going to be a thing, and you're still going to try to get the the, the four and five star blue chippers, and maybe even try to get a project in there to 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 you know maybe redshirt a year like you saw with Landon Lucas and Mitch Lightfoot and guys like that. But overall, I think the day of the transfer is upon us and it, it's going to be like the wild west and and i don't I, I i don't know how i feel about it yet scott i guess i kind of want to see how it plays out these next few years to see how the the transfer portal and all that uh, plays out but 
it's just it's just the reality of the situation. That that's just how it is. You know, kids are going places, and maybe they it's not a good fit for them. And you know what? I I a part of me is, is saying, you know what? Go find a place that's going to make you happy. Then you know, there's no sense in you know trying to go someplace where maybe you thought was going to be great, and maybe it's just not. And I know that may may bother some people from me thinking that, but you know what? I, I, I think that, you know, a kid like Bryce Thompson, who was okay at KU, he had some good games and he was definitely had a future, but you know what? It wasn't going to work out for him. And that's fine. And even that means going somewhere in the conference. You know, the other thing you got to consider in this too, when you mentioned the one and dones is what the NBA has done with the G league, um, knocking those base salaries and everything up quite a bit. That's making it, very attractive to these kids that don't particularly care to go to school, but right now they have, well, I guess they don't have to now because they can actually go and make, you know, a lower end decent living um, on what the G league can pay now. So they don't actually have to go to school. And I think that's going to make, I think that's going to make things even, even worse. And, you know, in my mind, I'm not, crazy about everything that's going on with this as far as these um, transfers like that I never was crazy about the one and done I thought if you went to college you needed to be there two years one of the few things that um, uh, Bob Knight and I would ever agreed on that would have been one of them he was huge about kids they should have to be there for two years um, if they come to college but I think the NBA and that G League and this the bigger salaries I think we're going to see a big effect on it especially if this transfers get more prevalent. Why should a kid come there have to compete against maybe a fifth or sixth year guy when a heck I'll just go make 40, 50 grand this year in the G league. Well, and I, you know, you talked about how, you know, what Bob Knight thought of it. I actually kind of like how baseball does their, their, their uh, rules with the, when it comes to going pro, if you want to go pro out of high school, that's fine. But if you come to college, you're there for, I think, was it three years minimum? Something like that. I think you're right. I'd have to look at that for sure, but I think you're right. So I, I, you know, I, I actually like how baseball does it. If you want to go pro out of high school, that that's fine. But if you if you go to college, you're there for I think it's three years. I like to see maybe maybe college can uh, college basketball can start a trend like that where maybe hey, if you want to go pro out of high school, that's fine. But if you come to college, you're there for at least two years. Yeah, and boy, uh, I hate to be the poo-pooer there, but it ain't gonna happen. Because no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> You've got this huge push, and and I don't like it. They're gonna start. Um, getting money um to play college basketball i mean they're gonna already that's a done deal benefit off their likeness but i i think we're gonna see the day where they're actually getting more than that and it, it i mean it's a huge business and i think it's many it's it's just gonna get worse as far as becoming a business and not just a, an amateur sport any longer yeah and it, 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 it's just I think we could be on the brink and I'm not saying one year or two years, but maybe within the next decade where something like we talked with the European super soccer league a couple of weeks ago, maybe mm-hmm. eventually the power fives are just going to break away from the NCAA and do their own thing. I mean, I, I think we're kind of on the brink of something like that. If not happening, being seriously discussed. You're correct. I mean, they've, they've d- tinkered around with it a little bit, talking about it more behind closed doors than anything. <laughs> right. But, um, yeah. I, I am unfortunately. I think eventually it's going to happen. But, but again, fantastic news for Jayhawk fans, at least for, for this next season. Some of these guys, like Remy Martin and Jalen Coleman Lance, combining with everything they've got, should put KU again right in the mix to challenge for that Big Twelve and and national title um, this next season. Well, speaking of national titles, Brad, um, so so much for the. Last regular season challenge for the Hutch Blue Dragons, they just absolutely dismantle a good Dodge City team. And I think you can tell us a lot more. I think you were at this game. 70-14, to 14, a score just shocked me. And now the Blue Dragons are just kind of in the, um, the wait-around mode. They were expecting an announcement um, either today or tomorrow, if I've got the dates correct, um, on if they're going to get invited to play um, for the national championship, which I can't imagine they're not going to, but kind of before we talk about the potential national title game, just tell us what you saw at that Dodge city game. It, it kind of went back to the Highland game before that. It's that they, uh, 
their 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 second, third, and fourth stringers are just better than some teams' first stringers. And again, I know that we're in a different season this year. You know, this this may not have happened if if they had played in the fall. So you know, maybe some guys from Highland and Dodge and other places like that maybe decided at semester, hey, I'm I'm just going to go. Or maybe they decided, hey, I'm I'm not going to play in the spring. I'm just going to get ready for the fall. You know, there's all kinds of reasons. But Hutch, on the other hand, you know, I think they knew that they were going to have a great team this year, and, that, and those guys all came to the play this spring. And and actually, Scott, they did announce it this afternoon okay. that it is going to be uh, Hutchinson against Snow College out of Utah for the national championship uh, on June 5th in Little Rock. Okay, I had not seen that. I was. I did most of this prep yesterday and this morning and was busy the rest of the day. So um, what what do they know right now about their opponent and and how do they match up? You know, Snow is an interesting team in that for a lot of years, they just would play, you know, the Arizona schools. And there's I think there was what, maybe six Arizona schools. So they would play the six Arizona schools, maybe New Mexico military and maybe make a nice trip to Iowa or, you know, Texas and play somebody like that. But since all the Arizona schools drop football, there's a lot of speculation. You know, what's this going to happen to Snow? Is Snow going to continue being an NJCAA member? Are they going to maybe join the California conferences and, and just play the California schools or something? And, well, right now they they played a full NJC. They've been playing full NJCAA schedules. I, I, from what I know, they're very well supported financially out there in Utah. Uh, they got a lot of, you know, great booster support, and they beat Iowa Western this year to start the season 31-30. to They beat Lackawanna 27-7, and they just, you know, because of their location, they had to play some, I guess for lack of a better, lack of a better word, just some odd, odd teams. They played someone called Southern Shreveport and beat them 63-18. to They beat, I'm not going to say this right, Ho-Ho-Kam Gila Riva? <laughs> Ho ho come Gila Riva or something seventy five to fourteen, and then to 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 to, to cap it off, they beat Gordon's Fine Arts and Sports Academy seventy seven to nothing. So they 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 did sweep the Iowa schools and beating Iowa Western what that 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 was good. That that's that's probably the biggest reason they're playing in this national championship game was because they beat Iowa Western who finished the season ranked number four. Uh, but that was way back in March, and I know Cisco, Texas, is undefeated. And boy, they're they're not happy right now, mm. and, and understandably. I mean, so, when you got three undefeated teams and you only got two spots, someone's going to be left out. And I, I'm just glad that the consensus, at least with the upset Cisco fans and players and coaches, seems to be that Hutchinson deserves it, and they do. And boy, I tell you what, uh, if, if Hutchinson goes out and just clobbers snow uh, in Little Rock. Uh, there's going to be some some people saying, why didn't you invite Cisco? And maybe even a push for maybe a 14 playoff. Hmm, what does that sound vaguely familiar like? <laughs> Gosh, seems like we've had that discussion about another league or a division or something of college sports. <laughs> it sounds exactly like the BCS system and now to the 14 playoff. And yeah, three undefeateds, that's just never – no, you just there's no way nobody's going to be happy with what you come up with, except the two teams that are in and the one team, the odd team out is always going to be, you know, furious thinking, you know, that they got the shaft that, you know, they should be playing. So and maybe maybe this will be a good thing for for Juco football and, and that'll at least maybe get some talk started about a, a playoff, even if it is just four teams. Um, it would it would be better than having that odd team out, especially in a, in a crazy year. Um, like this year it probably screams for one even more than a regular season well i think also what juco may end up doing i'm not sure if financially if a playoff even a four team would be feasible i think the only way maybe is if you maybe had like a neutral site where teams converged and played say on a sunday and then like had a quick turnaround for the championship game like the next Friday or something like that. I think what you may end up seeing is the regular bowl season will continue to happen, and then they'll have like a plus one in two weeks after the all the bowl games are played in Little Rock. That's where the national championship game is going to be played for the next couple of seasons. So I can see something like that where you play the bowl season as normal, and then maybe after the bowl games are played, you have your plus one game. Yeah, maybe you could see something like um, right around that right before Thanksgiving you play the the bowl games you know and especially if you can line up if you have um, you know three undefeateds and one highly ranked one lost team get those in the bowls 
the two winners of that play in the first week of December, possibly in Little Rock, something like that, I, I think you could see for see happening. It's kind of similar, I think, the way the NAIA does it. I think they take two weeks in a normal season between the semifinals and the finals. Maybe maybe JUCO can adopt something similar to that. Yeah, and I know that, incidentally, and I know that Cisco will be pushing for it, but another team that's really upset right now is Iowa Western, who went 7-1, and one, and their one loss, of course, was to Snow. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, what you what, what the biggest problem you have right now, Scott, is you got Hutchinson who played nothing but Kansas schools except for one non-conference game against Arkansas Baptist. You had Cisco that played primarily the Texas schools and NEO and, and, and uh, New Mexico military. And then you had Snow just kind of played their own schedule because they're an independent. So there's really no way to know, honestly, is Cisco the third? They, they could be the best team in the country. We just don't know because there's in this weird season of COVID, we just don't know you know how these teams would match up because there wasn't a lot of interconference play yeah you had everybody's limiting travel for obvious reasons and um it's certainly better than than the alternative to not be crowning a champion um but um certainly not a perfect system i think that can be made better and then maybe that is again as we said one of the good things that will come out of this with three undefeated teams is that'll at least maybe get the talk going of uh coming up with some kind of a modified bowl slash playoff system. Um, however that shakes out, we'll be very interested to see as we'll anxiously await June 5th. And I'm sure we'll, we'll break it all down. And once the blue dragons play for the national title, well, speaking of titles, Brad, something we certainly didn't have last year was any spring sports champions. And we're right on the verge of getting ready to crown Um, baseball and softball track and field all of the spring sports getting ready to crown their champions so let's let's dive right into some of our schedule and some of the brackets let's first talk about baseball and 4a who brad we don't have an area team so that means we need to talk about what happened to the bueller crusaders they them and mcpherson pretty much most of the regular season were one and two in class 4a actually listened to some of their opening round game against Rose Hill. Extremely fortunate to win that game. Um, had to come from behind, I think, in the seventh inning, down one. They ended up winning by one or two runs and then ended up with, as you mentioned, the crazy weather. Um, I think that delayed them, was it two days before they were able to play circle, and that circle ended up beating them, advancing the state. So what, what happened in, in your eyes to the Bueller Crusaders to miss out on state? Well, there's their offense just went poof yeah. pretty much. I mean, they just, uh, you know, just three runs and in eight innings against Rose Hill. And they did score six against Circle. But uh, on top of that, you know, how often in baseball do you see a team just kind of have that one big inning that kind of carries them? That's what happened to Circle. I think they scored, what, four or five runs in one inning, hit back-to-back home runs in that championship game. And so, and, and you know, there's just, they had a couple of defensive miscues in those innings. And, and honestly, in these in in these kind of postseason environments, it's really the team that probably maybe not be the best team, but maybe the team that plays the most consistent, the team that plays the most air free baseball, the team that comes with a couple clutch hits, the team that has a fewer left on base, uh, left on bases, and you know the the team that has the the, the fewer earned runs or the you know earned runs or whatever. And but beyond that, Scott, I, I just kind of want to point out just how wild four A baseball was in regional play. Pratt, the number one overall seed in the West, lost in the finals 3-1 to Clearwater, the number nine seed. Bueller, the number two seed overall, lost to the number seven seed Circle. McPherson, the number three seed overall, lost to the number six seed Circle or uh, Mulvane. Clay Center was the only tournament host on the West side. And e- even then, Augusta kind of pushed them in the championship game 4-2. to two. But it wasn't just on the West side, Scott. If you look at 4A on the East side, uh, Paola, uh, survived. They, they they were the top seed overall, but they needed a seven to six win over. Let's see who was a Wamigo. But even then, El Dorado pushed them in the first round, eleven to six. Uh, I don't really count Miege beating uh, Iola, the number two seed, but uh, it was still three two competitive game. Uh, Eudora was the number fourteen seed. They're going to state. They beat Atchison, the number three seed, and then Tonganoxie, and then Speaker Hayden was the thirteen seed overall. And they're going to state. So, boy, 4A baseball was just wild this year in postseason play. Yeah, there's so so many upsets as you're talking about, or at least perceived upsets from 
you know, what we thought we knew going in. And I said, we, we focus a lot on Bueller because that's one of our main area teams. Nickerson um, wasn't in the equation this year. They had a, a really down year. So we were looking a lot at Bueller and McPherson and to, to see the state tournament without either of those, that was, that was certainly surprising to me. Yeah, and this was definitely a Bueller team that had the goods to win a state championship. They had the pitching, they had the hitting. You know, they they really had a complete team this year. But in a single elimination baseball tournament, I mean, we've seen it so many times through the years. I mean, all it takes, I, I think it was what the year before Nickerson won state. I think Nickerson was the number one seed and they crashed out in the first round at state. So, you know, we, we, we see stuff like this happen in, in baseball. I believe I had that game you're referring to. I think that. <laughs> Uh, um, they're in Salina. They have, they went down in the first round to the eight seed that year. So um, anything can happen. Uh, like you said, um, it just takes a great pitching performance from a, an underdog to to get a team to advance. Um, so we'll jump into Class Three A. This actually starts off with the game I'm going to have on Thursday as our only Three A area baseball team or the Heston Swathers, um, former. Um, Little River High School product, Skyler Hill, tremendous pitcher there and at Barton County is the head coach for Heston. Um, they ended up as a five seed at 17 and five. They play at 545 on Thursday against the four seed, also 17 and five Frontenac. And the thing that I haven't done a lot of study on this yet, but the thing that really jumped out to me between these two teams, Heston won their semifinal and final game in their regional by one run Frontenac won all three of their games in regionals by one run. So to say that these two teams are battle tested in close games, getting ready to match up against one another would be the understatement of the tournament. And I'll say that I think Frontenac in there, they went, they, they had that Southeast Kansas regional where the four bottom seeds won their first round games. It was just wild. The eight seed, seven seed, six seed, and five seed all won first round games. So, uh, you know, there's some great baseball down there with Baxter Springs and Riverton and good softball down there, too. So it'll be a good test for Heston, I think. Yeah, that should be a fantastic game. Uh, Anderson County, the top seed at 20 and three, I believe. Didn't you see Wichita Collegiate and Halstead? Were you in that regional? I did. I did see Collegiate. They ended up winning that, and what, what a bizarro regional that was. They moved it from Collegiate over to that brand-new sports complex, Genesis Sports Complex in Goddard. 100%, Goddard. Yeah, 100% turf fields, beautiful complex. And Kingman tried like heck to get their facility ready, and I guess Genesis said, hey, you can use another one of their fields. No, we're good. Then they say, well, we can't play. Uh, Cheney, you want to host? Cheney, yeah, we'll host. Oh, sorry, we can't, we can't host either today. So they moved it back 24 hours to play it at the same place where – that they were offered to play in the first place but uh yeah collegiate a very young team i mean they i think i don't think they had any seniors on that team so uh, a a good young team that is you know not trying to win it this year but next year and i also see that bishop ward the number six seed uh, a perennial power in in 4a 3a baseball and what i kind of like about ward is that uh and i know that they're a private school and it's kind of maybe not cool to say something like this but Ward is actually one uh, from an athletic department standpoint, not good. They are not good at anything, but they're still good at baseball. So mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of nice to see that, you know, a, a school, even if it is a private school that takes their lumps in a lot of sports and they do, they, they, they get beat badly in a lot of sports. They still got baseball though. Well, we won't get into the, uh, the private school <laughs> talk that, that, that may, we make, we can make a, I could make a podcast out of that alone for probably <laughs> half an hour. So we'll, we maybe steer clear of uh, that one. Well, let's hop into two one a Brad. I was, um, did a ton of these games um, this last week. And, and uh, let's again, start with teams that didn't make it. I had the Ellis regional um, and the Ellis regional did the pod system, Brad, the, the one eight and the four five games were supposed to be in Ellis on Monday. Those games were played at Fort Hayes State. And then the two seven three six games involving Inman and Little River, supposed to be in Inman, those are played at McPherson High School um, on their turf field. Um, and we got the matchup we were expecting, Inman-Little River, and Inman ended up winning that um, semifinal game. Eight to five, Little River left the bases loaded 
um, in the top of the seventh of that game. And then Inman advancing, I went out to Ellis. We were actually able to play in Ellis on Thursday. And my goodness, did we see some fantastic pitching from Ellis. This Tegan Kane that they threw against Inman, um, three hit, a very good offensive lineup. Um, the one run was a solo homer for Inman from their catcher, Jaden Lenhart. Um, they ended up losing 5-1 to an Ellis team, obviously at 19-0 is the top seed. But um, it was a culmination of a, a bunch of freshmen that stayed together, didn't get to play their junior year last year, but um, still a fantastic finish for Inman. Um, a lot of these kids were the ones that lost in the semifinals at, at Oakley. Again, another game I had. Oakley just about 60 miles from Ellis. So I, so I told Coach uh, Michalecki that Western Kansas wasn't very good to Inman this year. Um, Oakley eliminating them in the semifinals of football and the Railers getting them here in baseball. Well, Ellis must be pretty legit because that was a pretty tough regional. I mean, not only did you have El- or Inman and Little River, but you had Sacred Heart there also. Mm-hmm. And Ellis put a 7-1 to thumping on a good Sacred Heart team. So, you know, Ellis uh, uh, seems to have uh, – they just give three runs in three games. I mean, this seems to be, you know, a team that definitely is very worthy of the top seed and definitely a state championship contender. Well, I tell you what, sign me up if – if you could get the pitching matchup between number one Ellis at 19 and 0 and then number two Sedgwick at 22 and 1, give me Tegan Kane and Nolan Crumrine. I'll travel there <laughs> right now to call that game. I, I've seen both of those kids pitch, Brad. They have got fantastic collegiate level stuff. I, I would love to see those two meet in the finals. Yeah, it would be something. I would have to probably say that Ellis will probably be saving their ace. If not for the first game, then a probable, a probable semifinal against Pittsburgh Colgan yes. waiting there. Uh, as far as Sedgwick, I look at their bra- uh, half of the bracket. I, I don't know a ton about it. I do know Spearville, the sixth seed, is a regular at the state tournament. And and because of that, even though they're, they're the sixth seed, they play Colony Crest first. I I, I'm always kind of leery of those teams that are there every year, and then all of a sudden they show up one year maybe without the greatest record in the world. Those are the ones that kind of make me a little scared because they're either really young maybe and, you know, they're starting to build a little bit, or maybe they're just kind of that team where, you know, it, it came together and they're starting to believe, you know, they, they've got the spearville on their chest. So it'll, it'll, be, it'll be interesting to see. I'm very uh, interested in, in who comes out of the lower part of that bracket. Yeah, I had Sedgwick, again, the Marion Regional. Um, they played all of their games Monday and Wednesday last week at <clears throat> Emporia State on the turf there, and I had the the two uh, semifinals and the finals there, uh, Mound Ridge and Sedgwick, and then it was uh, Chase County and Marion. Marion, uh, you look at the scores of those games, Brad, and they were all run rules, all three of the games, but they were all very good games until just one disastrous inning for whatever team it was that lost. I mean, um, again, um, Sedgwick clearly was the best team there. Um, so I'm going to be very curious. Yeah. Them and Colony Crest, boy, that would be a quite a semifinal matchup. But again, if, if Sedgwick and Ellis meet that, that, if those two pitchers are still available and with the pitch count rules, Brad, that, that right. is just disastrous for, uh, uh, playing three games in two days. <laughs> right. Yeah, it, it, it's got the makings of a – should be a pretty good matchup uh, if they would make, meet in the finals. So that's kind of the uh, baseball there. We don't have, at least first day, any coverage. Um, I think in the past we've covered a little bit of Sedgwick, but we don't have any coverage um, from 2-1-A um, baseball as of right now. So let's slip over um, into the softball side of things, Brad. Um, and I believe – I don't have the schedule up here. Let me get to the bracket. You have a game in Class 4A coming up. I think you have uh, oh, oh, Ho-Hum and Dale Garden Plains in state again. <laughs> uh, that's a shock to everybody, I'm sure. <laughs> I think maybe the shock is they're the four seed. Opening round game, 7 o'clock from uh, Bill Burke on Thursday evening. They're 19 and three. They're going to play an 18 and four Eudora team. So what have you been able to find out from Andale Garden playing so far? Well, still waiting to hear from both coaches. They have acknowledged that they'll send me their stuff. So looking forward to it. But we know that Andale Garden Plains got their the tradition. They're one of the top tradition programs in, in 4A, not just softball, but baseball also. 
and they usually have the pitching. And four is just usually a juggernaut. I mean, I, I look at the number eight seed is Winfield at fourteen and eight. So there's there, there's some really really good teams in this four A tournament. I mean, Pratt's usually really good. They're seventeen and five. So it's going to be very interesting. I think that that uh, I, I think this the four A softball always seems like you know forget forget the seeds. I mean, these teams are all really really good. Holton at the top at twenty one and one. And of course, you know, they play the likes of Silver Lake and Speak of Hayden throughout the year. So this is going to be a really, really good tournament. And Andale Garden playing, uh, it, it's probably one of those things. I don't think anybody would be surprised if they, if they won the whole thing. And I don't think anybody would be surprised if the, a team like Eudora bumped them off in the first round. What, what kind of chance do you give 17 and 5 Pratt down there at the seven seed of, of getting um, to the semis and even the finals on Saturday or on Friday? Pretty good. They got the tradition. They've got the history, and they've got the the usually the players to, to surround it. So, you know, Pratt's uh you know coming from the tough Central Kansas League, they're they're well tested. You know, they played the likes of you know uh, Haven throughout the year. So this is I I, I think Pratt's got a pretty good chance. Well, you just mentioned a great segue into Class Three A. Is I ended up um, again due to um, weather the Heston softball regional the uh, semifinals and finals got pushed into friday before their field was ready to go and i ended up having uh, haven hillsborough in the semifinals and then the haven smoky valley finals and saw um, somebody i know you're well acquainted with big mac estelle mcguire um, get to pitch a couple of games and haven uh, it was the same theme in each game they jumped on hillsborough seven nothing in the first inning, and they got up four nothing on uh, Smoky Valley in the first inning. So um, not only did they show they're very good defensively and pitching, they showed that they've got quite a bit of pop offensively, and they had some pop. They had their number nine hitter Homer um, in the championship game against Smoky Valley. So um, this is yet again ho hum Havens at state softball. They've never been able to take the title. Um, I'm trying to think if this is do I if I get the feeling that they can take this tournament. What do you think? Well, they they've got you know of course you got an elite player in McGuire Restle and of course her I can't call her little sister but her younger sister Sadie, who is uh, I think maybe even taller than McGuire is as a freshman, and she of course is. you got the you got you got the Brawners you know Brooke and Brianna is just a very good team right now. I think the key for them will be the semifinals because you got Silver Lake Silver and Frontenac Lake. matching up with one another. And Frontenac comes from that southeast corner where you've got the likes of Riverton. And, and I know that uh, there's a lot of quality programs down there in southeastern Kansas. And Frontenac's one of them. I think that the if Haven, assuming that they can get by the first round against Prairie View, that's going to be their big game is the semifinal, the Silver Lake Frontenac game. And I hate to put the cart in front of the horse because Cheney's really good, too. And there's some good teams over on that half of the bracket because Rock Creek at 15 and 8, they, I think they play a lot of the same teams that Holton and Silver Lake play. So they're going to be well tested as well. But I, I just think the big game for Haven if, will, would potentially be on a march, march to the state championship would be the semifinal game of playing either Silver Lake or Frontenac. Yeah, we'll have coverage of the Haven game at 5 and also the Cheney game is at 5 o'clock. Cheney, the top seed, they're 22 and 1. Haven, 21 and 2. Uh, you mentioned it's a Rock Creek Cheney matchup. Uh, it would be fantastic if we had uh, Cheney and Haven. We'd have some great sponsorship and um, great listenership if Cheney and Haven would match up in the finals on Friday. Absolutely. And Cheney's had a pretty good ath athletic year after winning a girls' state championship in basketball. Yeah, that would be quite a quite a finish for them if they could make a big run here in, in Class 3A softball um, up in Manhattan. And that Manhattan, I'll get to see the those games are being played, the baseball at, at Kansas State's field there, Bill, Bill Snyder. You know, family stadium and everything right there. That's that's, that's going to be quite a treat. I've never never been there for baseball, so that's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, it's a good facility. I, I like that they use these D1 stadiums. So let's move on in. We do have one team in our area that qualified in Class 2-1A softball, and that would be the Marion Warriors. They are 21-2, and two, and that being said, 21-2 <laughs> was good enough to get you the four seed in Class 2-1A. Jayhawk Lynn, the top seed at 22-1. and one. Marion in the four-five matchup at seven o'clock Thursday evening, going to take on twenty and three 
Burlingame. Um, saw just a little bit. Marion was playing on the turf field at Emporia while I was doing the baseball semifinal. So I got to kind of kind of glance over at um, their games. They were very, very dominant in that regional. Um, again, coming Central Kansas, it's hard to know um, how good Marion is. I think they dominated um, this their opponents, the, their hard opponents during the regular season. I'm just trying to get a feel on how good Marion is going into this tournament. Well, we're going to find out because – the difference between the one seed and the eight seed in the in state this year for two one is three games. Jay Auckland, <laughs> twenty two and one, or they're playing the eight seed Bell playing nineteen and four. Uh, boy, that's just a loaded tournament. So we're we're, we're going to get a pretty good idea. Uh, I, I don't really know too much about many of these teams that are there. I know El Saline, the six seed. Uh, usually, uh, Saline County's got mm-hmm. some very good softball. Don't know anything about Jay Auckland or, or a lot of these programs there. But I know Spearville's been there plenty of times. Pittsburgh Colgan's been there plenty of times. Uh, so, yeah, uh, Mary's going to find out pretty quickly just where they stand. Again, our, our schedule posted up on adastroradio.com and the sports page. Um, go there and see our schedule, and it'll be a revolving schedule on who advances and um, who doesn't. And unlike we saw at State Basketball, Brad, they are having um, third and fourth place games this year at State Baseball and State Softball. So if you win on the first day, you're guaranteed two more games. We, we didn't we got deprived of that during basketball season. Yeah, that's good. I, I've been kind of on the fence on three or on the third place games, but uh, after not seeing them, I'm like, you know what? I think I kind of like them after all. Well, it would, um, pardon the French, but it would suck to play in them because you, the quick turnaround, you just lost your chance to play for state. No, oh, by the way, we got to play another game now. Um, <laughs> it's always the mentality of how do you want to finish the season? Who's going to, who's going to be able to wrap their head back around that, um, and try to take home the third place hardware. But again, we'll have uh, all of that action for you, hopefully all on Thursday and Friday this week, if the weather um, will hold out for us because Brad, I'm, I'm busy on Saturday as the summer league, the Kansas collegiate baseball league and McPherson pipeliners after the year that was not last summer for them, they they're returning to action with their home league opener on Saturday, May 29th at seven o'clock against one of the, the new teams. And I'm still trying to figure out if I, if I like this, the Midwestern moves, how about that for a, a <laughs> mascot? So the, the moves and the pipeliners, it's going to be a completely different team. I haven't been able to look at the roster yet, but they only have two players um, on this year's team that were on the team two summers ago. Um, so it's going to be a whole lot of different, different players it's a great atmosphere mcpherson traditionally has always supported their teams and especially their baseball very well we've got we have very good crowds they play over there at light capital if the wind starts to blow out um you can see a lot of home runs but it is the unique part i love of these summer leagues it's a wooden bat only summer league um so it's a little bit more like your minor leagues and your major leagues where you don't have that aluminum bat that the ball really flies off of and, and it, it's a lot of fun and I'm, I'm looking forward to that i'm gonna have all of the home games on their youtube site they'll also be um, audio streamed on ad astra during the summer as well and we're going to try to work to see if we can add some some road games in there but that that should be a lot of fun it was a lot of fun two summers ago i'm really looking forward to that on saturday yeah I, i've been a big fan of the summer baseball uh, leagues and teams and, you know, Hutchinson's got the Monarchs of course, and they're getting ready to start their season. And I just, I, I've been a big fan of these teams. I, and I'm glad that the, the, it seems to be actually growing in our part of the world. You know, we see, we're just seeing, it seems like teams are just kind of popping up and that teams are doing you know pretty well. And I, and I, the communities do a good job supporting these teams, especially like you said, in McPherson and in Hutchinson. And speaking of that, uh, Scott, I don't know if you saw this or not, but the NBC World Series made an announcement today that the entire first week of the World Series will be played in Hutchinson this year. I did not see that. Are they going to use just the one facility there at Hobart? I, that's the plan right now. And then the, the, the second week, the championship week, will be played uh, at the new uh, downtown ballpark in Wichita. No, I had not seen that. That's a, that is quite an announcement. That'll be a, an exciting tournament. I know this uh, the summer league, they're going to have a big 20 team kind of right after the end of the regular season for these summer leagues at Goddard at the new facility. You got to be at with all the turf. Um, it's a double elimination 20 team tournament. I know the pipeliners are 
going to play in that tournament. So that's kind of a, another tournament that's going to try to gain some momentum. So I'm excited to see how that works this year. Yeah. And it's, uh, I, I, yeah, is it a qualifier for something or is it just a tournament or what? Um, to my understanding, it's just a tournament. It's not a qualifier. Um, I think still your league tournaments are going to determine your qualifiers, but I think this is a tournament for, um, maybe a lot of teams that aren't anticipating earning a berth in the um, college world series or the NBC world series that it's going to give them yet another chance at some postseason baseball. Yeah, that's great. And uh, you know what uh, you mentioned about the, you know, wood bats and all that. And what I like about it is it gives these kids a taste of uh, professional baseball essentially. And by that, I mean, not just wood bat, but you know, you got the jam packed schedule where you're pretty much playing a professional schedule for six weeks or so. And that, that it's, I can't think of one bad thing to say about uh, the summer wood bat and collegiate teams. I mean, I, I, I'm a baseball person. I love baseball and I just, I, I can't wait to, for the summer to get started. I can't either. And again, that'll be a no rest for the weary turn right off of state on Friday and into the pipeliners on Saturday, Saturday, Monday, um, back to back home games. So, um, that'll be a lot of fun. They got a really home heavy June schedule. I think they play 13 home games in June and two in May. So, um, it will be busy, but it will be fun. Um, I do have one more topic, Brad. I think I'm going to use that partially as my final thought. So we'll go ahead and, and, and switch to yours and then I'll get to the last topic for my final thought. All right. Well, um, I, I, I don't want to go too long here because if I, if I start ranting here, I'm, I'm just going to talk for about a half hour. And I just wanted to say that my daughter Josie just wrapped up her high school athletic season at Hutchinson High School where she played soccer for the last four years, technically three years, so they, they, she didn't get a junior season due to COVID. But soccer, and I'm not sure if there's any other sport out there uh, because I'm not really familiar with the club dynamic of any other sport except for soccer and baseball due to my son. And in soccer, there's just kind of this mentality that high school soccer is bad that if you really want to play soccer at a high level, you need to play club year round. And my daughter, Josie actually looked into doing something like that where, and I, and I'm not kidding here, Scott, she was offered a chance to play for this team out of, and again, I'm not kidding here, Oklahoma city okay. where she would have had to practice once a week in Oklahoma city. And they would have traveled, traveled the country, gone to, you know, their, their league games would have been in Houston and Dallas and Kansas City and Omaha and places like that. And they would have gone to showcases in, in Orlando and San Diego and stuff like that. And, you know, she was offered a spot and she essentially said, Dad, that's that's too much for me. And I was like, yeah, I, I don't blame you. <laughs> but go, going to practice in Oklahoma City once a week just wasn't appealing. Uh, yeah, that, that's a six hour round trip for those who may not know where I live compared to Oklahoma City. But the, the point I'm trying to make is that. Josie had such a positive experience with high school soccer. You know, she played three years, four years, three years uh, of actually playing. But this past year, and especially this past week, really kind of hit it for me. They played in the first round of regionals out in Dodge City. And they were down 2 nothing in the second half. And Josie later told me that she was thinking, wow, this is, this is where my high school career is going to end. And they came back and won in overtime. And the excitement that I felt as, you know, a, a dad of my daughter playing, the excitement that those kids felt when they scored the game-winning goal in overtime, it was sudden death. And watching the video, those managers felt when the game ended. You can't duplicate that kind of excitement, that kind of pride, that whatever in a kind of a club environment. And, and that's not to say that Josie didn't have stressful games or prideful games playing for her club team all those years. She did. She had, she played in some good tournaments. She played, you know, in a regional tournament in Kansas city where they're playing teams from Indiana and Ohio, et cetera. But there is nothing that you can, that can be matched. The pride that you have pulling on the Jersey of your local high school and essentially your community, the pressure that comes with that. Everyone in school is talking about it. And she said that literally everybody in school was talking about that went over Dodge city the next day. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned to you before we got on the, uh, before we started recording that the baseball guys traveled down to the championship game at Wichita Northwest on Friday. The principal was there. This is stuff you don't get in club and you just can't match it. And the fact that, you know, that club soccer, for some reason, is looking down on high school soccer and to the point where they're even encouraging 
high-level players not to play high school soccer. It's sad to me because, again, last week, all the emotions, all the excitement, the nerves, everything like that, playing for a trophy on Friday night. You just can't duplicate that in club. And I'm so glad that Josie played high school soccer, even when she had the opportunity maybe not to do that. I I, I completely agree. I, I don't understand why we're in such a hurry to grow kids up um, into adults before they're actually ready or should be adults. I mean, and I think that's kind of what this club soccer would do. It takes away that camaraderie with your friends and the pride of your school and and just just being a kid and doing it for your school and your team and um and like i said and in the club soccer it may be good in one aspect is preparing some of these um more elite kids that have talent like your daughter does for the next level at college but again i i think we're depriving or trying to start a trend of depriving our kids of being of being kids and just being able to be a high school kid and athlete. And, and yeah, I, I'm not crazy about that trend either. And like I said, I'm not sure if there's any other sport that does that from what little I know, maybe volleyball is starting to lean a little bit that way too. Uh, but I, it, I'm so glad that Josie decided to play high school soccer or maybe decided not to play club year round. And it, it was so, like I said last week, the, the gauntlet of emotions from winning that game in Dodge City in overtime. The drive back is so much better of two hours when, when you win a game like that. And the, the pride in playing for a regional championship. I mean, gosh, it, it was so much fun last week. And that is, it, it is. There's, there's nothing better than high school postseason, whatever sport you want to insert that's your favorite sport to watch. Just the the one and done at high school um it's there's just nothing like it i don't know how any better to explain it i've been involved in it long enough on the broadcasting end it's just it's fantastic to see like you said the the highs and the lows the emotions and the pride and the the town spirit you know like you said some of these smaller towns brad if you wanted to to rob a house or a business you just wait <laughs> until one of those playoff nights because there's nobody home they're all right. at the game. They're, that's that's where they are, um, and they take pride in their kids and in their and their next door neighbors' kids and their and and their neighbors' kids. And it's a, it is fantastic. And 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 I hope that doesn't overtake soccer or any other sport um, at high school. Um, for my final thought, there was one topic I wanted to get to, and my final thought kind of segues off of it because there was a bit of history yesterday, Brad. I'm a I'm still a pretty big golf guy. I don't play much anymore, but I, I sure enjoy watching it. And Phil Mickelson, um, at 50 years, 11 months, and seven days yesterday, became the oldest man to win a major golf tournament as he won the PGA Championship for his sixth major and his second um, PGA Championship again, becomes the oldest um, person to do it and he, and he watched Phil and I have to admit I was completely guilty of this when he was still the leader after the second and even the third day in my mind I thought nah it's going to catch up with him he'll fold on Sunday and you look he shot one over par but you look at his two closest competitors Brooks Kepka, who's been there done that I mean, he's fantastic he was two over um, Louis Ustazen was right there but he was I think uh, one over or two over on the day so the course was really tough and I think the shot that told me the most about Mickelson he was on the par five I believe it was 15th and here he is at 50 years old you've got the likes of like I said the Brooks Kepkas and these guys that are just mashing the ball he steps up there and hits a 366 yard drive the longest of the week of any player and I think into the par five, he was hitting a, what was it, a seven iron for his second shot. Um, it was just, it was incredible to watch. And the gallery that engulfed him, I mean, at the 18th green, you had to wait for him and Kepka to emerge out of this mass of people. They were so nuts about what he was doing and what he accomplished. It was it was magical theater to watch, especially since something like this had a 50 plus year old had never won a major on the PGA tour. And, and now he has, and he he's already in the hall of fame 
So to solidify his Hall of Fame career was something else. I only wish it could have happened, and maybe it will, at the U.S. Open next month. He's never won that. He's been a bridesmaid six times at the U.S. Open, but never won it. Uh, maybe he will, but it, it was something to watch on Sunday. Golf is kind of like the new boxing. They always say, and by that I mean that they always say that the, every champion's got like you know that one great final run in them. You mm-hmm. know, for boxing, you know, we saw that obviously with people like George Foreman. But this is the third time. Uh, I know that Jack Nicklaus did it, but uh, also, but I wasn't re- very old then. But this is the third time in, in my adult life where I can remember, you know, a well past their prime golfer winning a major and just or or Tom Watson didn't win when he was 59 and almost won the British Open that would have been one of the great moments in sports history but seeing Phil and Tiger Woods a couple of years ago win the Masters I mean those are just uh, they, it gives you chills to see these guys kind of rekindle the glory days and not just lead after one round not lead going into the final day but win the sucker I mean, it's just remarkable seeing these guys. And it just really also tells you what they do to keep in shape. I mean, for Phil Mickelson to go out there at, at his age and still win a major, going up against guys, you know, who were in elementary school when he was, you know, winning majors last time. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, these guys, these golfers are in the best shape of their lives. You know, the, the golfers of today are not the golfers of 30, 40 years ago. These guys are physical specimens now. And Phil, and guys like Phil Mickelson and Tiger Woods and the, going back to what, 10, some, 10 years ago, Tom Watson are still good enough to go out there and win a major. It's just remarkable. Hey, he does it with his brother on the bag. I mean, how, how special that must have been for him. I, I guess kind of my final thought segue and off is something he said in his interview and you kind of already alluded to a little bit of it as, as far as, you know, he said that he said this kind of proves that, yeah, you can still do this at, you know, at my age of 50 or almost, like I said, he's um, a matter of days away from his 51st birthday. But he did also point out, he says, but you have to put in the time and the effort, he said. And at this age, you have to put in just a little bit more. He just kind of emphasized that it can be done. But you have to do it maybe above and beyond what somebody, some of these guys are 25 um, years younger than he is that he just went out and beat. So I think that really hit home with me that, yeah, it can be done, but you have to realize that you probably have to do a little bit more um, than your opponents. You always have to do that, but especially to compete and be in the shape he was to win it at almost 51 years old. I thought that was, that really stuck with me in his interview yesterday. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I, it also make, gives me hope that maybe Tiger Woods isn't done yet or some of these other guys aren't done yet. So, uh, you know, Sergio Garcia or something like that, or, or maybe Phil can win another one. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see. I, it, it definitely it, it's good for golf. It is certainly good for golf. And again, I, I just wish it could have happened at the U.S. Open. I have something that he desperately wants to win, but I, I don't know any better way to, to, to get ready for it than to win the PGA because the U.S. Open's always on Father's Day weekend, which will be coming up here in just about a month. So um, he's riding high, and I wouldn't put anything past him. He just – he's amazing to watch, and uh, that's, that's something we'll watch and certainly talk about if he's in, even in contention again at the U.S. Open here in a month. But uh, that kind of – Gets all through all of our topics this week. Again, if you want to follow our high school baseball and softball state championship coverage, again, that'll start on Thursday. You can go to adasterradio.com and the sports page. I'll be in Manhattan. Uh, Brad's going to be in Salina for the first day, and then we'll see when and where the teams play on Friday. But again, for View from the Press Box for this week's edition, for Brad Hallier, This is Scott Hogan. God bless. We'll see you next week.